Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 21 to 25 this morning. And as you're turning there, I want us to think about something. Why is it that so many people think of themselves as good, right, as good people, when the Bible clearly says that there is none righteous, no, not one, there is none who seeks God, there is no one who does good, not even one. Why is it that in the the face of the Bible telling us that none of us are good before God, that so many people think that they are good on their own? For example, if you try to share the gospel with somebody, and you start talking to them about sin and their need of Jesus, many people are likely to say, look, I, I think I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a saint, I'm not perfect, but, you know, i nice to my neighbors, or at least I leave them alone. I don't steal, I don't kill, I don't, you know, I'm not hurt anybody. Uh, I may not, you know, be as generous as some others, but I feel like I'm a pretty decent guy. I get along with people at work. I just don't think I'm a bad person. The reason that so many people, I think, the reason why so many people think that way about themselves in part is because they are mainly thinking about how they treat other people and not thinking about how they treat God. Remember when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? His answer was not, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, love your neighbor as yourself is like the greatest commandment. It's the second greatest commandment, but the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. So you may be a decent neighbor. You may be a good employee. You may be a good dad or a good mom or whatever. You may be, you know, kind of guy people like having around, but that doesn't mean you're good if you don't love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Remember when Adam and Eve were put in the garden when they were created by God and he told them not to eat from the fruit of the tree there in the garden? When they, when Eve was deceived and took that fruit and she gave some to her husband, they had not primarily sinned against each other. They primarily were sinning against God. And even David, when he sinned with Bathsheba and and had Uriah put to death, he confessed in Psalm 51, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. Not meaning he hadn't actually sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. He had. But ultimately, mainly, primarily, his sin was against God. And what we're going to see this morning in Romans chapter 1 is that this is the reason why God's wrath has been revealed from heaven against men. This is why men need the gospel, why we need salvation, is not mainly because of what we do to each other, but mainly because how we have responded to God. So look with me at Romans chapter 1. I'll read verses 21 to 25. Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, let's catch up with where Paul is in this argument. He has just said in verses 16 and 17 that he is unashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So, Jew, Gentile, whoever you are, if you trust in Jesus, the gospel is God's power to save you, to give you new life, to forgive you of your sin. And the reason why it works that way is because in the gospel, Paul says, the the righteousness of God has been revealed. God has shown how he is able to be just and yet justly forgive those who have faith in Christ. Because Jesus paid for sin on the cross... When someone turns to Christ and confesses their sin and and calls upon Him as Savior and Lord, their sin has been paid for on the cross, and so that God can forgive them and declare them righteous and still be righteous and just Himself. He's not ignoring their sin. He's not, uh, you know, sort of winking at their sin or just, just pushing it over to the side and ignoring it. It has been paid for. It has been dealt with. And the reason why that is such good news, that God has made a way to deal with our sin justly so that we can be forgiven and declared right and God can be right and remain righteous. The reason why that's such good news is because he says in verse 18, the wrath of God, God's anger, God's just anger has been revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here he begins talking in general terms about all humanity. God's wrath has been revealed from heaven against all the sinfulness of men. And all of us are sinful. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, all of us have come into the world as sinners. And so our default is to sin. And Paul says, in our sin, we suppress the truth about God. And all of us know the truth about God because God has made it plain in creation. In other words, we know that there is a God. We know that He exists. We know that He's powerful. Many people deny that. They make arguments against that. But deep down, at some level, all of us know the evidence is there. There is a God. And yet, the way we respond to the truth about God... Paul said in verse 18, is that we suppress it. We seek to hide it, to tamp it down. We don't want to acknowledge it. We don't want our lives to be shaped by that truth that there is a God who created us to whom we are accountable, who's powerful and mighty, and who we ought to worship. We don't want to know that. And so by default, by our sinful nature, we suppress that truth through our sin. And Paul begins to to unfold this a little more fully, beginning in verse 21. Here's our sinful response to God as humanity. This is just in, in general. This is what people do. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God 
or give thanks to Him. So they, they knew there was a God. Right? People know there's a God because of creation. That's what Paul has just been saying in verses 19 and 20. They know that there's a God. But even though they know it, they don't act like it. They know that the only reason they exist, they know the only reason this world exists, the reason they have life and breath, the reason they get to see beauty, the reason they have food to eat and air to breathe is because there is a God who made all these things and yet they do not honor Him. They don't praise Him. They don't glorify Him. They don't worship Him. They don't say, you're great and good and wonderful. You're powerful. You're mighty. You're awesome and majestic. They don't honor Him as God. They don't, they don't say, I'm a creature, you're the creator, I owe everything to you. That's not what they do. And they don't give thanks to Him. They don't say, thank you for giving me life. Thank you for giving me food. Thank you for giving me a place to live. Thank you for giving me uh, a beautiful world to observe stars at night and the sun during the day and the changing of the seasons. It's beautiful. Thank you for creating all of this. They don't thank Him, and they do not honor Him. This is the fundamental problem with humanity. It's not the ways we hurt each other. It's not the ways we sin against each other. Those are serious, but those are not the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is we know that there's a God, and we have ignored Him, and turned our back on Him, and gone our own way. That's the main problem. Think about it like this. Imagine that your dad, out of the kindness and generosity of his heart, built you a house for you and your family to live in. And he built it perfectly. Everything that you needed, all the accommodations you could ask for. It's an excellent house. And he just gives it to you. And you and your family move in. And you get all set up. And you start to enjoy your life in your new house. And your dad... Every day, he comes into the house, he sits on the couch in the middle of all the hustle and bustle of the house, and he just sits there quietly, and you and your wife and your kids, you walk by him every day, you never say hello, you never say thank you for this wonderful house, you never have a dinner to honor him and say, you've done so much for us, we just want you to know how much we love you, you just ignore him. You just walk by him. Go your own way. Do your own thing. And one day your mom says to you, this is not the kind of person I raised you to be. This is not how I taught you to treat people. And you say, hold up. I'm a good dad to my kids. I'm respected at work. I I volunteer. My neighbors like me. What do you mean I'm not the kind of person you raised me to be? I do all kinds of good things. Who's right? Are you right or is your mom right? You are neglecting the person to whom you owe the most thanks and gratitude and completely ignoring him. That's the way that people treat God. He's there. He gave us all this stuff that we have, and they don't pray, they don't sing, they don't worship, they don't seek Him, they don't honor Him. 
They just go about their lives doing their own things. No honor for God. No thanks for God. As far as they're concerned, God's main job is to keep the really bad people out of hell. Let the good people like them in. Make sure nothing too bad happens down here. And maybe help my team win on Sunday. That's all they think God is for. Paul says that's the fundamental problem with humanity. And it comes with serious consequences. They act this way. They don't honor God. They don't give thanks to God. But what happens is, middle of verse 21, they became futile or vain in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So as they turned their back on God, ignored God, went their own way, what they did was they turned from light to darkness. They turned from wisdom to folly. Their hearts were foolish. Their hearts became dark. Their thinking is vain. It has affected the whole person. Their whole lives have been immersed in shadow and folly because of their rebellion against God, because of their ignoring God. But they claim, verse 22 says, to be wise. They think they're quite intelligent. They think they know exactly what they ought to be doing. They're living exactly how men ought to live. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Maybe this even even has a little bit of of an echo of the story in the Garden of Eden. Remember when Eve looked at the tree, when the serpent was deceiving her, she saw that the tree looked like it was good for food, and uh, it also was... uh, Desirable to make one wise. If I eat this, I'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? Men turning from God think that they are wise. While they ignore God, they claim to be wise, and yet the Bible says they became fools. They became fools because they exchanged The truth about God for a lie, verse 25 says, because they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, verse 23 says. Though they claim to be wise, they have become fools. And this is one of the most important principles in Scripture for how we are to think about about claims people make about God. Because, as we talked about last week, there are people who are very prominent and very public voices who scoff at the idea of there being a God at all, who think that you have to be a fool to believe in the Bible, to believe in God. Some of them have lots of letters after their name. They've been in school for a long time, and they're they're put on TV, or uh, their books are published because people say, these are the brightest minds of the age. These are very intelligent people, and they're very rational. And if these men say that there's no reason why a person with a brain would believe in God, then they're probably right. But the Bible helps us to see through that foolishness. The Bible reminds us that uh, the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. Uh, That many people claim to be wise, even though in truth they are fools. Those who scoff at God, who scoff at the scriptures, who scoff 
at Christians may seem wise in the eyes of some, but there is coming a day when every word they have spoken against God and against faith and against Scripture will be shown to be the folly that it is. One of the reasons why verses like this are in, are in Scripture is so that you will not be intimidated by people who think that they are wise and you are a fool because you believe in God and trust in Christ. You can, people, there are very smart people who believe in God, right? Too. There are a lot of people with lots of degrees who believe in God. I'm not saying we shouldn't listen to, to smart people or you know, people with, who have been to school for a long time. I'm saying don't let people intimidate you with their supposed intelligence if what they are saying directly contradicts what we know to be true about God. See it for what it is. Claiming wisdom, but an actual truth being foolish. And how is this folly seen? How is this folly evidenced? It is seen in their idolatry. Right? They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And verse 25 says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Their folly is seen. This is how you know whether or not someone is truly wise or truly foolish. Their folly is seen in the fact that they have turned from God and traded God for some created thing, some idol, some creature. The, The folly of idolatry is what characterizes all of humanity outside of Christ. You might say, well, hold on there, that's a little outdated. I mean, I can understand why Paul would say that in his day, because in Paul's day, if you went to Athens and you saw all the the statues to all the different gods and whatnot, you you weren't going there as a tourist to learn about Greek Greek culture. You were going there because that's where people worshipped these gods. So, yeah, okay, idolatry was a big part of people's lives back then, but surely that's not the case now. But it is. It is still true. It is still true. That all of humanity outside of Christ is enthralled with idolatry. Now, it may not be what we think of as traditional idolatry. There may not be a statue on your mantle that you offer incense to or that you pray to or anything like that. But there are other ways that idolatry expresses itself. Not just in the literal images of birds and animals and people and reptiles. But Paul says in, uh, in the New Testament, he says that coveting is idolatry. Well, what is coveting? Coveting is desiring something that belongs to somebody else, wanting it to be yours instead of theirs. How is that idolatry? I think what Paul is saying is when we come to a place where, where we say, I cannot be happy unless I have that thing, That somebody else has, we have turned that thing into an idol. That is covetousness, and that is ultimately idolatry. So you can make an idol of a possession, of a person, 
of somebody's status, anything that you say, I cannot be happy without that thing. You have made that thing ultimate. You have made it God. That is your idol. So idolatry is seen in, our, in people's covetousness. Idolatry is still seen in the world today in the traditional forms of idolatry. There are some restaurants you can go to where you can still see idols up on the wall and things like that. Um, That kind of idolatry is still real. We see idolatry in hero worship. You make a person, whether it's a spouse or a friend or a celebrity or an athlete or a hero of some sort, if you make that person the ultimate person in your life, that's, that's... That's what my world revolves around is that person or being like that person or trying to be liked by that person. That that person has become an idol. You can treat material things as though those are ultimate. If your whole life revolves around some possession that you have, a vehicle or a bank account or whatever, anything that you make ultimate Anything that you devote your life to, anything that your life revolves around other than God is an idol. And everybody does this with something. We were made in God's image. We were made to worship Him. And if we don't worship Him, we will worship something else. Even if it's just ourselves. Something will be at the center of our lives. Something will get our chief attention, our chief devotion, our chief allegiance. It will go somewhere. And wherever it goes other than God, that is what the Bible calls idolatry. So let's go back to our imagining earlier. Your dad's built you this house. You don't thank him. You don't appreciate him. You never say anything to him about it. He's just there sitting in the living room all the time. You pass by. Your kids pass by. And now, because he's built you this house and given it to you, and you didn't have to pay for it, and you don't have a mortgage and all that stuff, you got lots of other things you could do with that money. Right? So you finally buy that truck that you've been waiting for forever. And every day you walk right past your dad, and you go buff it, and you go sit in it, and you go drive it, and you go show it off. I don't know, maybe you go right past him and you sit in, in the, the other room and you watch TV and you watch your favorite show with this guy who goes around and he builds houses for people that need them because he loves them and he's kind and gentle. And you love this guy. So you don't say anything to your dad about the house he built for you. Maybe you've even got a picture of him somewhere on the wall. You walk right past him, but you see that picture and you say, thanks, Dad. But you don't actually talk. To... All of those are ways that people... Come up with idols, other things, substitutes, things they put in the place of God. That is how men treat God. And that is why the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It seems like such a simple thing. But to refuse to thank God, to refuse to glorify God, to refuse to honor God is the fundamental sin of mankind. And there's a consequence for that. As we said, not only the the darkening, the futility, the, 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 the folly that comes into our hearts from responding to God that way, but there's a further consequence in verse 24. 
See the word therefore at the beginning of verse, 30, uh, verse 24. Because they have responded to God this way. Because they have traded God for other things. They've devoted themselves to created things rather than the creator God. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So because they have given themselves to something else other than God, God gives them up to their own sinful desires as a consequence of their sin. The kind of sin he's talking about here is sexual immorality. When he talks about the lust of their hearts, when he talks about impurity, Paul often uses that word impurity in, in several other places, in Colossians and 1 Thessalonians and 2 Corinthians. Almost all the time, very often when Paul uses that word, it's in connection with various kinds of sexual sin, sexual immorality. And so what Paul is saying here is because men have rebelled against God, they have turned their backs against God, they have gone their own way, that what God has said to them is, okay, go ahead, have it your way, chase your desires. Pursue your sinful inclinations. Live your life differently than the way that I designed it to be lived. Go ahead. He hands them over. He allows them to pursue their lusts, to pursue impurity, to dishonor their bodies in the way that they uh, act toward one another. And this is because, he reiterates this in verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. This means that God's judgment does not always look like fire and brimstone falling out of the heavens. Sometimes it looks like God saying to humanity, go ahead. I will, like I think somebody said, loosen the reins. I, I, I'm not going to restrain you from doing that anymore. You, you want to pursue that? Go ahead. That's a judgment in itself. Allowing you to pursue your own sinful desires is in itself a judgment from God. There is nothing more frightening than God saying to somebody, have it your way. When he tells us to do it his way, to turn from going our way and to go his way, he's saying that not out of meanness, but out of love. He's the one who created us. He's the one who designed us. He knows how we ought to live, how we flourish, how we uh, best enjoy our lives, right? how, how, our, how our lives are best lived. He's the one who knows. And so when he says you know, go ahead and do it your way. That is, again, an act of judgment. Now, again, he's speaking about humanity in general terms here. He's talking about the way humanity has responded to him and the way he has given up mankind to our sin. Right? And uh, there are lots of conclusions we could draw from this. Right? And, and in many ways... Um, we are seeing this kind of thing play out before our eyes, right? When we see the, uh, what appears to be rampant and growing, um, not only uh, 
allowance but approval of sexual immorality in our culture, we see that as a cause for alarm, right? And we should. But what we need to recognize, what Paul tells us here, is that is merely a symptom of a deeper problem. The root problem with mankind is not sexual immorality or any other kind of sin. As serious as they all are. The fundamental problem is that we have turned away from God. The fundamental problem is that men have gone their own way. They have worshipped other things. They have devoted themselves to anything and everything other than the God who made them. That is what Paul says is why we need the gospel. Why the gospel is good news. Because there's no sin idolatry, sexual immorality, or whatever. There's no sin that God is unwilling to forgive when someone turns to Him and asks for forgiveness and calls out to Jesus and recognizes that Jesus' death on the cross is the only way they can be forgiven, the only way that they can be saved. And Paul's saying when someone turns and trusts in the Lord, that righteousness of God means your sin has been paid for, justly by Jesus' death on the cross, and then God declares you righteous on the basis of what Jesus has done. You're no longer defined by your sin. You are now defined by the fact that you are in Christ, that you belong to Christ. Your sins are removed from you as far as the east is from the west, and you become a new creature, a new creation, and when God looks upon you, he says, that one is righteous. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. This is why we need the gospel. This is why we need to get the gospel to people all around the world. Because we've all turned our backs on the Lord. We all need God's forgiveness, God's mercy. We all need Christ. And that's why we should be unashamed of this good news.